The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Father, we are your own personal possession because Christ, the captain of our souls, overcame our sin and death and the grave. He leads us in triumphal procession and it is our delight to belong to him as his conquered people, a people who receive all the benefits of his triumph. Father, we thank you that he laid the grave low. And now we as Christians do not fear death. Now we as your people fear no guilt of punishment of sin at all. He bore it all on our behalf so that we could be saved and saved to the uttermost. We pray that it would be in light of this salvation that we would both worship, we'd hear your word, and that we would live our lives in the joy and the triumph of his victory. We pray this in our Savior's great and mighty name. Amen. If you would please remain standing for the reading of God's word. And turning your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Excuse me, Colossians chapter 2. And while our sermon will be looking at verses 16 through 19, I'd like to begin reading back in verse 13. This is nothing less than the very word of God from him to you that you would know him and love him and live for him. So please give it your full attention as your God's word is read to you, his people. Colossians 2, beginning verse 13, says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Well, the grass will wither and the flower does fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. You may be seated and would invite you to pray with me. Our great God and Father, we come before you as your children, and we confess that as we reflect but for a moment over this last week, what, what else can we say other than we have strayed and wandered from your ways like lost sheep? We've done the things that you've told us not to do, and we didn't do things that you've commanded us to do. We've sinned in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. And we ask you to do so not because we are in and of ourselves deserving of such a forgiveness. We're not asking that you would, as judge, ignore our sin. We're asking that you would, as a result of what Christ has done, as our sin bearer, forgive us. We pray that you would wash us white as snow. We pray that your grace would be everything that your word says that it is, greater even than our sin. We believe you. And we rejoice in the forgiveness you freely offer. We thank you that you do not treat us as we deserve. But you shower blessing upon us, your people. With salvation and with so many other things, oh God. We pray for the needs of our local church. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray, oh God, that you would show the strength of your arm in each and every one of their lives, for the discouraged and the downcast. Oh God, be the lifter of their head. For the grieving and the mourning. Oh God, be the God of all comfort. We pray that those who are mourning in our church would know the nearness of your presence. We pray for the Dentons. We pray for the Zorans, oh God. Be the God of all comfort to them. We pray for Lucy. Be the God of all comfort to her. We pray for Ariel and Brian and their family as they grieve the loss of thee. Oh God, be near them. For those suffering and struggling physically, oh God, be the great physician to them. We pray for those who are battling disease and cancer, oh God, that you would be merciful that you would cause your peace to rule and reign in their hearts. We pray for our Pastor Brian as he is away from us this Lord's Day, and we ask, oh God, that you'd use them powerfully at the conference down in Las Vegas, that he would speak clearly your truth, and that it would change and transform those who hear. We thank you that we have him to share and to bless other churches with, 
And Lord, as he's been a blessing to us, we pray that he would be a blessing to them as well. We pray for the mothers in our church who are expecting young ones. Oh God, give them safe, healthy pregnancies and deliveries and babies. And we pray even now that you would, in your kindness and in a, at an early age, oh God, move in grace on these little ones and save them. Lord, we pray for those in our church who desperately long for children and do not have them. Oh God, provide. Show your kindness. Show mercy. And show sustaining grace in seasons of waiting. Father, as we open your word today, we pray that it would run forth in triumph through our hearts and minds, that Christ would be exalted high, and that we would treasure him and cherish him more than we do. We pray this in his great and mighty name. Amen. The world is constantly trying to convince you and, uh, well, I guess everyone, uh, that there is a perpetual uh, river or stream of, of new things pervading your life and that the key to either enjoying life or excelling in life or happiness in life is to apprehend that, that newest thing, make it your own or be owned by it, however you want to look at it, and, and that that would really be the key to success and happiness. Now, sadly, sometimes we as a church fall into that on a number of different levels, but one of them is that we can tend to think that certain temptations or certain uh, ways of living the Christian life are, are new, and that there's something found in that newness that will unlock our spiritual life as some kind of spiritual life Hack that like those dumb YouTube videos will show you that like there's really you've been doing it wrong the whole time. Here's what you need to do. I don't know if you've ever watched those videos or tried them. I am like zero for however many I've tried in succeeding in these things, but we want that same result in our spiritual life. I don't think I'm the only one who's had seasons of spiritual dryness and wondered, what is it that I'm missing? Have you ever gone through a season of life where maybe there's besetting sin or, or, or maybe it just doesn't feel like you're, you take that term spiritual life and you just say to yourself, there's not a whole lot that feels like life here. There's gotta be more. And so we, we either read books or we listen to podcasts. Both of them can be exceptionally dangerous. And, and we're looking for that thing. And we wouldn't put it like this. We wouldn't say this. We wouldn't say that uh, Christ is insufficient. We would just say that maybe adding something to him makes it better. You might say that saying the same thing. I know, but the one sounds better than the other one. The first one I would recognize is wrong. The second one I'm hoodwinked and think, oh yeah, maybe I'll try that. Now, many of these, they're simply old lies wearing new clothing in the modern day. The temptations that befall you as a listener and as a, as a Christian are the same ones that have beset Christians throughout the ages. And two of them are surfaced 
in our text, in, in the context of the Apostle Paul, well, more than that, the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God, knows that you and I are prone to believing at times that we're missing out on something, some, some fullness that is there in Christ that just for whatever reason escapes our grasp. We want to know how to do it. We want to know how to unlike, uh, unlock that, that spiritual vitality. So maybe we wouldn't say that Christ is lacking. Maybe we would say he's full, but how do I get that? There's two major lies that have beset the church throughout the ages, and Paul lists both of them. The first is that legalistic rigors will unlock that fullness. The other is that mystical experiences will unlock that fullness. Now, you might just think of those two things. Legalistic rigors, fundamentalism, whatever you want to call it, and mystical experiences, or what sounds a lot like charismatic theology. And you might say, those seem to me to be polar opposites of one another. I mean, if you'll forgive the term, and even if you want, I'll use it anyway. What does a fundy have to do with a charismatic? I mean, these people don't have any fun. These people have some crazy, weird stuff going on. Like, what do these two things have in common? Why would they make the same list? And they make the same list for one very simple reason. They share the same wretched root. Both are trying to do something. Both are trying to unlock a fullness in Christ that you, and here's the spoiler alert, you already have it. It's open wide to you. But we can be tempted and lured and stumble into believing that I need something more than just the fullness of the Savior. I need something that'll unlock him or tap into a new, like, high-octane version of him or something. And Paul, Paul says, listen, church, you will be tempted at times to believe that there is a greater fullness in legalistic rigors. There are not. And at other times, you will be tempted to think that there is some sort of higher spiritual life found in mystic, ecstatic experiences. Guess what? There's not. You need the Lord Jesus Christ and him only. And your view of him whether it be a high view or a low view, will actually manifest itself in the way that you live. To put it another way, bad theology will work its way out in bad living. You, you actually can't separate your orthodoxy, right believing, from your orthopraxy, right living or acting or, or conducting yourself in the world. And so we want to consider this idea of this low view of Christ manifesting itself in two major ways. And we want to do under two headings. The first is this. We as the church of Jesus Christ need to avoid the snare of legalism. You might say, I don't even like legalism. Why would that be tempting? It's tempting to all of us just in sneaky ways. The first thing we want to consider in our text is we open up verse 16 is that lovely word that graces the beginning of the sentence, therefore. Now, I know it's cheesy and corny, but that's never stopped me before. Anytime you see a therefore, you must look and see what it is. 
Therefore, you got it down. So what is the therefore here? We're picking up in the middle of an argument. You can't like chop and slice and dice the text and pretend that what precedes this text doesn't have an import on what follows in this text. Well, it does. So what was it that Paul just finished saying that he believes has logical, consequential impact onto what he's about to say? Well, just look back at verse 13. It would probably go back to the whole of uh, Colossians 1, but we're not going to re-preach all of that. I know, keep the groaning and disappointment to a dull roar. So, Verse 13, Paul switches from this exalted view of God to the listener and says, now you, you were dead and you were under your sin and you were actually ruled over by cosmic evil rulers and God in grace and in his kindness took you who were dead and made you alive and that life you have lacks nothing. He took you who were under sin and sin's guilt and worked a, a forgiveness that actually doesn't need anything added to it. It's not like God got you 90%. Spend the rest of your life working down that last 10%. Show God you got skin in the game. Like, no. He made you alive. You did nothing to help that except add to the death that was there. He forgave you. You added nothing to it except that, well, the sin you had to be forgiven of. And he triumphed over those who were spiritual oppressors over you. And guess how much of a role you played in that? Zero. We're like the Israelites when David goes out to fight Goliath. We're hiding in the tent being like, get him. We don't even have the spiritual life to do that. But that's all we've contributed. This gospel that can save sin-ruined sinners. That's the only kind of people that does save. So if you're going, I'm really ruined with sin, that's just the kind of person God saves. He doesn't save righteous people. He saves wretches. So if you're here and you're a wretch, well, I'm not happy about the wretched part, but I'm happy that God works salvation for you. There's no one who can say they're so sinful that God cannot save. That being the context of the fullness of Christ. Try, I mean, look, just look at the end of verse 15. He's laying them to open shame and triumphing over them. You would be well uh, suited to ask at that point, you know what's lacking here? Nothing. That's the thing. That, that, that's the point. There's nothing lacking at that point. After verse 15, he could have been like, Paul out, I'm, I'm done. You don't need to even hear any more than that. But knowing the temptations that befall us and beset us, he says, now that gospel and all of its greatness, it's got a therefore that goes with it. That theology of doctrine that corresponds directly to reality it has an impact on the way you and I live. Gospel is not meant to be like put up on the shelf and be like, yeah, hey, you know, I got the gospel, got it back in 2005. And no, 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 no. The gospel lives and breathes and works through the trenches and mundane moments of your life. Paul says, given that gospel, 
I'm going to warn you about two lies that need to be utterly and totally avoided and shunned. Because this gospel is so complete, it needs nothing added to it. It's good just the way it is. Don't tamper with it. Don't mess with it. Don't subtract. Don't add. Don't do any math with regards to the gospel. Therefore, because of this gospel, and it comes as an imperative, a command, do not let one pass judgment on you. You have been acquitted by the judge of judges. Do not let, he just says one, he does, he's got people in mind, but he doesn't kindly, he doesn't name them. So this idea of passing judgment, you might say, well, what does it mean, pass judgment? Like, does this mean uh, someone in a formal court law, or, or what is this? What well, means to pass an unfavorable judgment, to criticize, to find fault with, to condemn, to take to task, or to sit in judgment over. Paul says, because you're a Christian now, and the fullness of the gospel is yours, don't let people judge you. You might say, I object. I don't know if you've noticed this, Paul. I don't control what people think. If you've not noticed that by now, I have news for you. You don't get to control what people think about you. You might waste most of your life trying to control what people think of you, it will not be a successful venture. So what does Paul mean? How do I control what people think about me? Well, he's not saying control what people think about you, like live so nice that all the people think you're perfect. Number one, it's not true. Number two, you'll fail at doing it. His point is this. Don't allow their judgment of you to so sway you and change you that you would act differently because of it. Don't let their thoughts um, they're, the things that they are really, really into and going to ram down your neck, don't let that bind your conscience, you could say. You've, you've got the gospel. You've got forgiveness. You've got life in Christ. You've, you can, by faith, see the spiritual uh, uh, oppressors laid to waste in front of you. Now then, don't let someone come along with, and he'll get to it, legalistic rigors, and say, now what you need to add to that, and if you think differently than me, you're a sinner. You're wrong. You're, you're this. You're a lower level Christian. You're, you're not experiencing what you really should be. Don't allow their judgment of you to bind your conscience and sway you. Why would you be bound and swayed by the thoughts of other people? When you have this kind of a gospel that lacks nothing, why on, and we'll get to, we'll get to it's not actually going to have to do with things that are required in God's law. Those should bind your conscience. But he's talking about other things. So what are the things that shouldn't be binding our conscience? Well, I'll be honest, the list that he gives is a difficult one to wrestle through, and we'll try to not get bogged down in the details. But notice what he says, let them not pass judgment on you with questions or, or with regards to food and drink. Now, what we have in verse 16, and then later on down in verse 18, is going to be kind of, kind of a, a syncretistic mixing of of what seems to be Jewish in some of its things and what seems to be like eclectic in other things. So 
when he says in food or drink, we could uh, rightly, I think, understand that there would be those specifically of the Jewish crowd who were saying, you know what you need to add to your Christian life? Don't eat bacon. And as a Gentile, you're like, what? I didn't sign up for this. And while we laugh at it, there are those who would take things like that and say, Here, here's, here's what you need to do. You're, you're good step. You believe the gospel. Here's what you need to do. Got to add some of that. Now, with food restrictions, that seems to be very mosaic in its iterations. Old covenant, we're part of the new covenant. Thank you, Lord, for the bacon. But he adds drink to it. Now I would ask you, are there any limitations on drink under the Mosaic Covenant? Uh, no, there's actually not. There's limitations on you can't get drunk, but there's actually no limitations to things that you would drink. So this seems to be something that is added to it. it uh, the, the, this perversion of legalistic rigors isn't happy to just kind of hang out under the Old Covenant iterations, but it, it morphs and moves and says, you know what, a real Christian wouldn't do, and you can fill in the blank. real Christian wouldn't eat bacon. Real Christian wouldn't drink certain beverages. That, that, that's what a real Christian would do. And that would then put you on a track that, that unlocks God's fullness for you. Paul says, nonsense. That is, that is in, in simple terms, trying to out-Bible the Bible. You understand that, right? We see a, a line that the scripture paints, and we say, you know what, to make sure I don't step over that, I'm going to make another line. That line's going to be back here. And it'd be one thing for a person to hold that personally. It's a whole nother just ball of wax for that person to say, not only do I hold this line, but guess who else should? You. You need to hold the same line that I do. And Paul says, you know what, he's actually going to develop it further uh, in our text next week, and so we won't get bogged down here. He says, listen, do not let them sit in judgment over you with questions of food or drink, as, as though that would unlock or hinder the fullness of the gospel in your life. It's ridiculous. The second uh, kind of chunk of things that he mentions, that's a theological uh, word, chunk, uh, is that... Um, it also shouldn't have to do with festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. And you might go, I don't even know what that is. So yeah, I don't think I'm tempted to do this. Uh, what does he mean by festival or the idea is that of a feast day, new moon, and Sabbath, plural or singular? Different versions will take it differently. So we'll just take them one at a time. Are there feasts that were prescribed under the Mosaic iteration of the law that all of Israel had to keep? Yes, there were technically three national ones that had to be kept. Could he be saying, you know what? There's going to be those in your life, specifically of a Jewish event, who are going to say, Christian, you still got to do Yom Kippur. You still got to do booze, and you still got to do first fruits. Yeah, I've, met, I've actually met some like that. You might say that's odd. We knew Seattle was a weird place, but now we know it's even weirder than we thought. Is that what he's talking about? It's very likely. What does he mean by new moon? Well, it might be just a celebration of the beginning of the month. Or it might be mixing in of, of some more like secular kind of pagan celebrations. Whatever it was, it's when the moon was new 
And they thought it was an occasion for a party or some kind of celebration that would aid and assist their uh, pursuit of God. What does he mean by Sabbaths? You might be like, I knew that fourth commandment wasn't binding. No, that's not what he's talking about. Seems to be what he would refer to. He puts it in the plural, Sabbaths. Seems to be that he'd be referring to high Sabbaths or special Sabbaths or special occasions that would be different than just the, as I don't want even want to use the word normal, but the regular celebration of God on God's day, according to the fourth commandment. So there'd be those, and while the clothing might change depending on the, uh, on the thing they're actually trying to get you to buy, the lie is the same. Real Christians do or don't do this. Better Christians higher life Christians. Guess what they don't do? They don't have fun. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You're Baptist. You have... (laughs) You laugh because the Spirit's convicting you. And you know, you you know these people. No, No hands raised, no testimonies given. Where they're like, the holier you are, the more of this I have. I'm so happy I trusted Jesus. And they think that that makes them holier. As though deliverance from sin was something to be sour about. You're crazy. If, that, if, if that's what you're thinking makes you holier, you're out of your mind. But you know it. You've seen it. Names and faces are coming to your face whether you want them to or not. They're coming to your mind. You should be the happiest people on God's earth. You should be a people who love what God has done and aren't too proud to show it with one of these every now and again. I know I scowl more than anyone too, so I'm preaching to the choir, well, preaching to the biggest offender at this point. So we ought to be aware of anything that's going to not be listed in Scripture. He's not saying like, hey, the binding laws of God are now no longer binding. No, 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 no. He's talking about things that lie outside of what God's law requires you that would be then added to your life to have that higher life that, that uh, you know, I've heard it recently. I won't uh, cite the source. But, you know, that, that, that idea of I don't drink, smoke, or chew, and I don't go with girls that do. You didn't know that before, you know it now. That idea of a cut above Christian. And you might say, well, I, I don't know if anyone who practices these things now. Oh, yes, you do. If we just take the list given, I actually used to have a friend who would, uh, he would celebrate Booths and first fruits, and the, the, as a family, they would like make a tent out in the yard and live in it and stuff. Like, and they wouldn't celebrate Christmas or birthdays. And you're like, that's weird. You have weird friends. Yes, I do sometimes. So that was the part. That was that was a, a, an element of regular Christians. They can do this. Not that. Not a better track. It doesn't even have to be on those same topics. We'll get to it next week where Paul says, listen, there's this this mantra that they have, don't taste or touch, this idea of of don't, 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 don't. Paul's going to go right at that next week in the text. But this idea of 
people's personal convictions or traditions being the thing that are foisted then on other people. As one commentator puts it, he said, food regulations, specifically he's talking about those under the Mosaic Covenant that are being drugged into this text. Food regulations and calendar observances and all such legal prescriptions that belonged to that transitory old age were mere pay, merely pale adumbrations. I don't even know what that word means. Of the coming permanent reality now realized in the person in the gospel of Christ. The implication is that the shadows are not, on, not only are now superfluous, but are actually disappear in the appearance of the substance. Isn't that what he says in the middle of, or in all of verse 17? He says there's going to be these people, yeah, they're mixing in some of the old covenant Jewish stuff and some stuff that doesn't seem to fit, but it's all mixed in there. He says those things that were in the old covenants served a purpose. The purpose was that they were shadows that pointed forward to Christ. And now guess who you have? Christ. Why would you then go back to the shadow? Makes no sense. It would be like a young man who's pursuing a young lady, and he's got just a lovely photo of her that reminds her, him of her, and they get married one day. The object. And he just goes back to the photo. You know, he says, you know what? Life's simpler right here. We won't run that illustration out any further. So, if you don't hear from me in a couple of days, that's going back to the object or to the shadow. These things in the Old Covenant, they were instituted by God and they had good purposes and they served those purposes by pointing us to Christ. You now have Christ. You don't need to add anything to him. In fact, any addition to him is a terrible mistake and will have devastating consequences. And there will be those in your life who will seek to not just have... And there's, there's issues of conscience, which we'll get to next week. I get that. But who would seek to not just have their consciences think a certain way, but would have yours think that same way. Paul says, that's nonsense. That's legalistic rigors that you think make you holier or closer to Christ or engage in more of Him, and it just simply isn't true. And I, I, I honestly, I mean it with all sincerity, I don't care what they're trying to do. You might say, well, their intentions are good. I don't care about your intentions. You're adding to or taking away from Christ. That's, the, that, that's, the, that's what matters, and you're way off base if that's where you're at. Secondly, because we have to get going here, we want to avoid the allure of mysticism. So if being a fundy isn't your thing, maybe mysticism is. <laughs> yes, fundy is a real term. But there's, they don't, oddly enough, this is neither here nor there, they don't have a lot of fun. I don't understand why they wouldn't, fun would be part of their name. But anyway, 
Avoid the allure before I get in any more trouble. Avoid the allure of mysticism. Look at what verse 18 says. He repeats a very similar command. The first command was in 16. Let no one pass judgment on you. The second command comes in 18. These are not recommendations. He's actually warning you, the church, beware of this. It's labeled good for your spiritual life. Guess what it's not good for? Your spiritual life. So don't or let no one odd way of saying it, disqualify you. Now he'll get on into what the what they're trying to get you to do, but that, that word up there, real similar to judge, but has some nuances as well. Now before we get into the content of verse 18, one of my favorite commentators, Peter O'Brien, says of this text, this verse has been described as one of the most contested passages in all the New Testament. Presenting great difficulties in language and content. I read that late in the week and was disheartened. He says, yeah, this is really hard. Not sure what's in it. Great. Sunday's coming really, really quickly. So what does he say about, I think if we just take apart its pieces and don't get too nerdy or geeky about it, I think we'll be all right. Let no one disqualify you. The idea behind that word disqualify is to rob of the prize. Now, obviously, if you get disqualified from a game, you do not get to participate in that game. And if your team happens to win anyway, guess what? You don't get the prize that was won there. So it's that kind of a word. It, it means to, uh, to decide against. And as much as you know, and Brian's not here, but he'll listen to this later. <laughs> it's an umpire word means to, like, you're out of here. And he's, like, painting it. He's using a baseball analogy to talk about a bad thing. You should learn from that. <laughs> Just saying. Let him who is understanding understand. It, it, it's like those who would say, I see, if you don't have, he'll get to the what you don't have, you're out of here. You're, 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 you're not that higher level Christian. Now, what is it that he says? Um, they, they do. They in verse 18, they insist on asceticism. You might say, I don't know what that word is or how to spell it. What's asceticism? Well, asceticism, the, the word he actually uses is a, a version of the word for humility. You might say, I thought being humble was good. It is good. But this version of it's not. What he's talking about is those who would, in pursuit of a higher, and this is just going to be the way I'm going to try to describe it, that higher second tier level of Christianity or spirituality, they would voluntarily deprive themselves, humiliate or humble themselves under certain things in order to be that better cut Christian. I say, oh, I've definitely met some of those people. There was one person, I won't use their name, that I used to work with, not at a church, just in case anyone was wondering. But, and uh, I worked with this person, and this word would describe him. He thought by never buying new clothing, you showed that your treasures were not on the earth. No, all it showed is that you shopped at Goodwill, and you looked weird. That's all it showed. That's all it showed. The other thing is he thought that things like massages or anything that was like enjoyable was wrong. And he would, uh, uh, I, I was, 
I heard him accuse people of not being a Christian because they enjoyed like going out for a nice meal or time. Good Christians don't do that. Oddly enough, he loved ice cream and he would put the smash on ice cream. But apparently that didn't, that didn't uh, cause any problems. So is this still there? Are there those who think that, you know what, the higher life is a miserable one? Yeah. I don't think God saved you so you could be miserable. I think he saved that you could have joy in Christ even in the midst of suffering. You would still have an unshakable joy. Right? Yeah, okay. So we're somewhat awake, but it is getting late. There are those who think that this self-deprecation, self-humiliation is this path towards unlocking it. And they would have you do the same thing. Paul says, watch out for people like that. Watch out for people who take what they believe thinks that's outside of scripture that, that they think make them a better Christian and they try to ram it down your neck or bind your conscience with it. Beware of that. They're undermining Christ. Secondly, he says, and this is where we get into some odd things, uh, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. You might say that no one does that. Yes, they do. Yeah, if you were to look up a certain church that resides in Redding, California, uh, you would see videos of glitter blowing out of the dust vents or the the air conditioning, and guess what else they think falls out of those vents? Angel feathers. I'm not joking. Carolyn doubted me this week. No, you wouldn't even believe this. But I showed her on YouTube. Look at this. This person has an angel feather collection. Some nasty old bird got caught up in the air conditioning unit. (laughs) She did say, that I was right. It was hard for her to get it out, but she did. If you don't think that, that there's a, a portion of what's flying under the flag of Christianity that isn't obsessed with angels, you're just wrong. And God's gracious, he protected you. If you did not know that was a thing, it's a thing. And he's protected you. Don't go on YouTube and watch them. I don't want them to get the, the views and uh, get compensated by YouTube for collecting uh, pigeon feathers and calling them angel feathers. So those who would want to expand their worship into the mystical and and expand it into the ecstatic and expand it into the the bizarre and say to you, like, what what did you do for your devotions? Like, I was reading in John. Like, oh, I was hanging out with angels. Which one do you think thinks they're better? The angel one. And guess what? And you might laugh at it, but Guess what you might start thinking after a while? If they keep saying they're hanging out with angels and they've got a collection of angel feathers and you're just reading your boring old Bible. Oh, this preys on people. It really does. Maybe it's not angel feathers, but because <laughs> that's an odd one. Uh, but later in 18, going on about visions. You just boring old Reformed Baptist reading your Bible and listening to sermons. God told me, he didn't, no, I'm just quoting what they would say. Don't report me to Brian. So, have you ever talked to someone who they get direct talking to by God? Don't got to study your Bible. Don't got to look into the deep things of how God's revealed himself to us. God gave me a vision. God gave me a word. It's impossible to argue with that. 
I mean, that's like the ultimate trump card. Like, I got a vision. Bam. How do I respond with that? And over time, guess what you can begin to think? I live a plain old boring life. They got this like, they got God on speed dial. They got visions that are directing the whole of their life. Some of them are weird, but the others are, I mean, maybe God. And you can start to see why the charismatic church is not just devastating our country, but devastating nations and continents. If you want to talk to people like Conrad and Bayway and ask what's, what's absolutely destroying Africa, it's this stuff. And guess where they got it? From America. We sent it over through missionaries and other avenues, and they told some of the poorest people in the world that God wants you to be wealthy and God wants you to be taken care of and the Christian life is this really lucrative life and, and we're raising the dead and there's always something with lengthening of legs. I don't understand, but they all can do it apparently. And, and, and that's that life. If you don't think this is a huge problem, man, the Lord's been kind and kind of protecting you and sheltering you in little old Nevada here. This is destroying people's lives. This has led some that I'm very, very close to to pursue some really destructive, I believe, elements. You got people like the like like Bethel, I don't even mind naming them. Prophetesses and apostolettes like Heidi Baker, who are convincing people of these things who are convincing people that if they aren't drunk in the Spirit, they don't got that second-tier life. And that there must be something wrong with you. Paul says, that's wickedness. Don't, don't be bound by that. Don't, don't, don't be drawn away by that. Don't even give ear to that. He diagnoses the root problem at the end of verse 18. They are puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Paul says, you know what? That stuff didn't come from uh, the Spirit of God or the Word of God. That came from a puffed up heart and mind. I would, as a rule of thumb, you don't want to engage in things that are like the root of them is pride and arrogance and fleshliness. Just as a rule of thumb, you don't want to go down that road. So Paul says, don't let those rob you of the prize by pulling you into that with them. And man, while some of the crazier iterations of it, you might say, I'm not tempted by, they chip away. And they like to pray, and this is where you need to be careful, they like to pray on Christians who spiritual life just seems a little dry been spinning my wheels on this thing and just not making forward progress. That's just the kind of person they pray on. Or if you have bad things happen to your life, they tell you, you know what? Got to be doing something wrong. If, if difficult providences befall you, and they will, they come to you from the hand of a good, kind God who's forming Christ in you. Not because you're broken. Or or the wrong kind of Christian. He's 
putting the Christian in difficulty on the, on the anvil and forging Christ in them. It's not a problem. That's the good work of God in our life. And those who would seek to avoid it by either ecstatic visions, um, kind of public humiliation, or worship of angels, or just being puffed up without reason in their hyper-spirituality. It, Paul says just it's all old-fashioned ignorance, and there's nothing to it. You might say, well, okay, if I'm not going to engage in... Uh, like legalistic rigors and add stuff and traditions and thoughts of men uh, to my pursuit of Christ. And, and but then the other side of it isn't true either with like visions and angel worship and feathers and this and that. Well, what is that thing that I ought to be doing? He gives you the answer in the middle of 19 saying, this is not what they do. Therefore, it is what you should do. Holding fast to the head, Christ. You don't need all of those extra added traditions. You need Christ. You don't need angel feathers. You need Christ. You don't need ecstatic visions. You need Christ. You don't need private weird words from the Lord that are highly suspect outside the realm of what the Bible says. You need Christ. And you need his word dwelling in you richly. Think of the Bible as some boring old thing when it's the very revelation of God to you. You need to rethink your view of the Bible. I think the Bible is exceptionally powerful and, and even in the way it's come to us, miraculous. That it would have for me and for you all that you need for life and for God. You don't lack. So Paul says, hold fast to the head. And then he actually gets into the corporate side of things, the way that these things actually impact you, not just as an individual, but you as a church body, from whom the whole body. So here's that relationship. Is the head important to the health of the body? Yeah. The body doesn't fare well without it. Or at all without it. Christ is your head, and from him comes all the life necessary and requisite for this life. And in him, the head, the whole body, that's the church, that's you, is being nourished and knit together. He's, Paul says, do you want to know how to be nourished in your, in your spiritual life? I, I want that. I want that for you. How do I grow in Christ? Go to him. Don't go to all these other nonsenses. Go to him, the head, the husband, who nourishes his body and his wife. Go to Christ and find there a fountain that is not lacking. Go to him and find a fountain of life and spiritual nourishment that is ever-flowing. I'd say, well, I've been going to him for a long time. Wonderful. He's not running dry yet. That would be like a, a child going to the Pacific Ocean and taking a few buckets out of the ocean and saying, Mom, Dad, I'm worried. I might run out of water. No, but I've taken several buckets. Don't worry. The Pacific Ocean is more than sufficient for your bucketary needs. <clears throat> That's not even a real word. You won't empty him. And here's the other thing, Christian. You won't tire him. 
You and I are impatient. He isn't. Come on, say, I go to him all the time. He's even tired of it. No. He delights more in your coming to him than even you delight in going to him. You don't tire him. He offers himself freely to be the nourishment his church needs and to be the thing. I think this is vastly important. Look what the second thing he does. And knit them together. That'd be church unity. You might think like, you know what, if we all dress the very same way and do the same stuff and eat the right stuff and don't eat the other stuff and drink the right stuff and don't drink, if we all look that way, that's unity. You're like, no, that's a cult. Christ is the one who works unity in his church. Not all of us having the same little convictions on this, that, or the other thing. That the world has unity like that. You have Christ in common with other believers. And in that, you have all things in common. Have you ever met a Christian out of the blue? Knowing nothing about them, you find out they're Christian, and instantly, instantly you're like, my brother, my sister. And there's, you, you share everything. Even though you have none of the same backgrounds, none of the same likes or wants or this or that. Maybe you just look around the room and be like, what do all these people have in common? Not a lot, worldly speaking. But everything regarding Christ. That's the real unity of the church. Not that we all like agree on the shade of denim we wear. Or the amount. Christ is what unifies his church. Through it, the joints and the ligaments. Now notice, what's the, that answer to growing in Christ? Well, verse 19 is the head. They grow with a growth. Notice where it's from. From God. It comes from him. So is God at work in the life of individual believers and in the life of a group of believers known as the church. Yes, he is. And is he working and nourishing their faith, even weak as it is and floundering as it is and and troubled as it is? Yeah, Christ is the one who's doing that. And even in the dry, difficult seasons, he's working in ways that you do not yet understand. Does it take faith to know And even though I'm not a super fundy or a charismatic, I'm just a regular old Christian trying to read and study my Bible and follow God along with the other people around me. It doesn't always look like I'm growing the way that I should. Can you know by faith that if you continue to give yourself to the means of grace, God is working. Even when, or maybe we could say especially when, You're not sure how. He's told you the way that he grows faith. He's told you it's through his word, prayer, fellowship, the supper and baptism. He's told you this. Will you not give yourself to the way that Christ ministers grace to you? That's the life of of a believer, giving themselves faithfully and by faith to the means of grace that God uses, trusting it is in these ways that I'm grown in faith 
and Christ is shaped in me. I don't need visions. I need Christ. I don't need a whole list of do's and don'ts. More don'ts than do's, but that's another topic. Uh, I don't need that. I need him. And in him I have all that I need. Christian, let me assure your your soul of this. Your, Your Savior is a sufficient Savior. You don't need to add anything to him. So hold fast to him. At all costs. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, work mightily in our midst, we pray. Work in our souls and in our hearts a love for Christ. Work in us by faith the belief and the conviction that Christ is indeed all that we, His bride, need. Lord, please shake us in the ways that we are legalistic. Shake us in the ways that we seek ecstatic experiences. Oh God, our feelings are not the thing that determines your faithfulness. You are faithful. You do good. And we trust you. Please assure our hearts that we need nothing more than our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe it. Help us to believe it in our bones. Help us to believe it when we wake up in the morning and doubts and fears and discouragements are thick. Help us to believe it in the dark nights of the soul. In the long watches of sleeplessness that Christ is enough. Thank you that we have such a Savior as Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.